0: And for everyone else, if you would take out your Bibles with me, turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we will be today in verses 27 through verse 32. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we will have the text up on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, uh, you will find some Bluebeck uh, Bibles in the pew in front of you somewhere. Uh, feel free to use that today. And then if you don't own one, take that home with you as a free gift uh, to you from our church and make good use of that. Um, As we begin today, we're going to start with our text, Acts chapter 5, picking up where we've left off. You'll notice that this is a part one of part two. We will be finishing Acts chapter 5 next week, and this is kind of a continuation of one story. But My hope today is to begin to see in Acts chapter 5, in this specific example from the apostles, uh, what faithfully living as Christians in a hostile environment looks like. Uh, Indeed, we see a perfect example of that throughout the book of Acts, and As well here in Acts chapter 5. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 5, 27 through 32. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that as believers, we don't have to wonder what is your will for our lives. We don't have to wonder how it is that we can follow you. We don't have to look to gurus or those who have any sort of secret knowledge or access to you. Lord, you have given us direct access to your word in the scriptures. And so today, Lord, if we come to the scriptures to hear from you. We come today not to hear simply from men, not to uh, simply hear what is good advice or good morals, but to hear from you, the very Word of God on the pages of Scripture for us today. And so I ask, Lord, that as I preach, you would help me and guide me in this task and that as we listen, we would take seriously the weight, the gravity of the words that we have here before us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who have ever uh, found themselves in court, whether it be for uh, some sort of crime that you committed, whether it be for uh, court proceedings, legal things such as adoption or or things like that, or or even something as simple as a speeding ticket, I myself, uh, whenever I was um, yeah, about twenty four, got a speeding ticket, and because I was under twenty five, uh, as some of you in our congregation know, if you're under twenty five, you have to go to court, and you have to go through the whole rigmarole of standing before the judge and and declaring yourself to be guilty they ask you what is your plea and if you got pulled over for speeding you're guilty and you say i'm guilty and you go through the whole process and if you've ever been through the process then you'll you'll know whether whatever sort of proceedings you've been to in court you'll know that there is a significant amount of of weight with the situation in court and all of it is designed to make you feel that right You are going to court, going before the authorities, the law of the land, going before those people who have rule over us and standing before them, whether you be innocent, whether you be guilty, you are intended to see and feel the weight of the fact that this person, this judge in this courtroom has authority, he's been appointed by the government, by those in authority over us to make these kinds of rulings to operate in this way. And it's a very weighty and significant thing. And everything about it is designed to make you feel that way the The architecture of court buildings are oftentimes very uh, very profound, very large, very, very grand. When you are in the courtroom, no matter what courtroom you'll in, you're in, one thing you'll always notice is that the judge him or herself always sits up up higher than the rest of the room and And there's a specific kind of order surrounding the event where even when you address the judge, you are not allowed to just uh, call the judge Mike or bill or or Judy. it is your honor, right There is a certain kind of significance that is and weight that is bestowed upon these kinds of court proceedings and it 's intended to be that way because the intention is that you feel the weight of authority that you that you understand the significance of what it means to be here that these people have authority given to them, and we are to submit to that authority our Apostles here in the book of Acts find themselves in this kind of situation where, though it is not necessarily the Roman court, they find themselves in the Jewish court. They find themselves standing before the council of the Jews, the high priests, those in charge, those who have authority over the people of Israel, and they certainly, I, I think, definitely feel the weight of this situation because it is significant. It is serious. And it is a place that they have found themselves before, standing before even this very council. The the title of my sermon today is Civil Disobedience for the Glory of God. Because as we see here today in our text, what it is that the disciples now are standing before the council, again, for doing, is for an act of civil disobedience. If you remember from a few weeks ago, the apostles, the church was, was told... Do not preach the name of Christ. And they they were warned seriously. They They charged them strictly, sternly, do not preach in this name any longer or there will be consequences. And as we know, because we've read the past few chapters, they didn't stop, did they? The disciples, the apostles, engaged in an act of civil disobedience by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They stood in direct opposition to what The law over the Jews had declared what the authorities over them had said, and now we're facing the consequences. And they stood now in this proverbial courtroom before the authorities, before those in charge, and they stood there to give an account. The disciples demonstrate for us what proper civil disobedience for Christians looks like. They were not belligerent. They were not disobedient just for the sake of it. They were not attempting to just be a a pain in the neck of this Jewish council. They were only disobedient, you notice, they only rebelled, they only disobeyed when it was absolutely necessary, when it was required to maintain obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. That's why Peter says in, in verse 29, or excuse me, that's why in verse 29 Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. Because the issue at hand here was not, we don't like the way you're ruling, Jewish council. Therefore, we are going to rebel against you. Because we don't like you. We don't like this law you've put down. or We don't like this ruling you have said. It's nothing like that. The issue, as he points out, is that they they were put in a situation, in a predicament, where the situation required that they choose one or the other. Either they were going to be faithful to the commands that Christ had laid upon them, or they were going to be faithful to these Jewish leaders, and there was no other option. There was no middle ground. They were going to do one or the other. That's why I have included in my title "Civil Disobedience for the Glory of God." I'm not attempting to describe here a an argument for civil disobedience for its own sake. I'm not trying to to discuss the apostles and explain their situation like those who chain themselves to trees or those who refuse to comply with a controversial law or restriction or, or something that would, that would restrict their rights. That's not the issue at hand that I'm addressing, that kind of civil disobedience. That might have its place, but its place is not in the pulpit, right? What I care about is this kind of civil disobedience that is required by obedience to Christ's commands. And so here, that's what we are discussing today, these actions of the apostles that have not just transient, not just earthly ramifications with regards to the setting around them, the Jews, the law of the land, anything like that, but things which have eternal significance, both for them and for all those in the land. The apostles never had a default posture of rebellion, but one of obedience and faithfulness to Christ. Actually... What you see instead is quite the opposite of any sort of belligerent or sort of disobedience for disobedience' sake. In fact, the apostles were very willing to be cooperative. They were obedient to these leaders as often as they could be. We see this in verse 26. You remember from last week when, when the Jewish leaders came to them and they said, hey, please come with us. Or you remember this is after everything that happened before and, and now they have come to them and they have said, would you please come and meet with us? Come stand before the council. You remember they asked them nicely, right? Because they were afraid of what the, the people might do. They were afraid of being stoned as they came and, and attempted to arrest these apostles again. They were afraid of what the people might do. And so they come to the apostles. And they asked them nicely. They say, will you will you please come back with us and meet with the council? And what did the apostles do? They didn't have to do what they did. They could have said, absolutely not. They could have made a ruckus. They could have turned to the people and said, These men seek to stop the work of the Lord, stone them, and it probably would have happened because as we know, a multitude of people were claiming Christ, were coming to faith in Jesus, were being added to the church day in and day out. But the disciples don't do that, do they? Absolutely not. Their civil disobedience is only when required by the gospel to the point that even when they are asked, would you please come and stand before us so that we can accuse you? They say, yes, let's go. And they go and they stand before the council. And over the next two sermons, I want us to to learn from this portion of Acts in Acts chapter 5 what true biblical Christian civil disobedience looks like for us as believers and when we should engage in it. And we will learn from the examples of the apostles here even in verses 27 through 32. The first thing we see from our story, and this is point number one if you're keeping track we see the accusation that's made in verses 27 and 28. As you already know, the apostles, if you, were, if you listened last week or if you know what happened previously in the previous section, the apostles and the church are, are going, they're preaching the gospel to all who are around. Many are coming to faith in Christ. Signs and wonders are being done. It's this amazing moment in church history as the church, the early church is in its infancy and is blossoming, is growing into something huge and significant. And we remember the Jewish leaders, this council becomes very frustrated. They become very annoyed with what they're doing because they've told them not to do this. And, and they are fearful of, of losing their power. They are frustrated with these apostles and, and them teaching about this guy that they had crucified. And so the, the council arrests them, right? They arrest them and they throw them into a public prison, as we saw last week. But what happened? Jesus, the Lord God, sent an angel of the Lord to free them from the prison so that when it was time to bring the men to be questioned, they sent to the prison, said, bring those guys in here. They go to the prison. What do they find? It's locked up. It's airtight. The guards are even still at their post, but the prison is empty. And they found them once again in the temple, as the angel commanded them to do, teaching and preaching the name of Christ. And this is what caused a certain amount of fear in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish council, because they said these men just miraculously escaped along with all the other things that the Lord has been doing. We dare not risk arresting them again. Let's go ask them nicely, right? And now that they have come, they, they stand here now and the accusation is brought before them by this council. And we see it in verses 27 and 28. In verse 28, they say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. First of all, notice I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but these Jewish leaders, this council, they can't stomach the name of Christ so much, so much so that they don't even name him by name when they're talking about him. We saw this in the last chapter, too. As often as they can, they refuse to say the name of Christ, but rather say things like this. We strictly charge you not to teach in. You you, you know the thing, right? Jesus, the name they do not want to say, they will not proclaim. They hate him so much they are unwilling to even say his name. And yet here's the charge. We charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The accusation that they make here by this council is twofold. The first complaint they have with the apostles is the civil disobedience, right? It's the fact that they were disobeying a direct order. They said, we strictly charged you. They shook their fingers at him. We've already told you this. Do not preach in his name. And so they find the apostles have been disobedient to the commands of these authorities. The second issue they had, though, was that the apostles were doing, they felt that what they were doing was that they were blaming these Jews and specifically this council for Jesus' death. They said, you are attempting, you, are, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're acting like it's our fault. People are starting to blame us or going to think that we are responsible for the death of Christ. And you can see why that would bother them, right? As the numbers of those who, who are following Christ now and have trusted in him and believed in him are growing, they see this is not an accusation we want levied against us. This is not something we want to be found guilty of. So they say, you're attempting to lay this man's blood on our hands to cause us to be the blame for his death. And I find this complaint particularly interesting for a couple reasons. First of all, this was the truth. These men were directly responsible for the death of Jesus, were they not? In fact, what we saw last week when this council was, is, is we see some of the names of the people on this council, it's the very same names that we see in the Gospels. These men who were directly responsible for the, the accusation for the, the murder of Jesus at the hand of the Romans. So, first of all, the accusation's true, right? They were guilty, they were directly responsible for Jesus' death. And two, the second reason I find this to be an interesting complaint is because we see in the book of Matthew that when Jesus was being tried, when he was standing before Pilate, these men, the Jews in total, acknowledged and accepted that his blood would be on them. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, and and Pilate sees that Jesus is innocent, and he's ready to release him. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. And he says, look, I'll even let you choose One of these prisoners can go free. Would you like Barabbas, this this zealot, this murderer, this evil, terrible man who's guilty of terrible crimes? Or I can release to you Jesus, who has just said some things you don't like. And what do the people say? They choose Barabbas over Jesus. And then what we see in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24 through 26 is this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And look at the response in verse 25. And all the people, that is all the Jews, everyone who was there, all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus delivered him to be crucified notice how quickly they changed their tune from this night when Jesus was arrested and betrayed they were quick to take responsibility yeah his blood be on us put this man to death we want it done we'll take the blame but now as their mission was in their mind accomplished Jesus was crucified But as we've already acknowledged, their worst nightmare has now come to fruition, has now become a reality. This movement that Jesus had begun didn't stop with his death, but things got infinitely worse. First of all, he rose from the grave. He was walking around, interacting with his disciples, interacting with people. Hundreds of people saw Jesus after his resurrection. And now here they stand in a situation where not only has this plan backfired on them, but now people are by the multitude are coming to faith in christ to where as they said it's all over jerusalem and even into the surrounding towns and cities they've changed their tune pretty quickly when they realize just the situation they're in they don't want this accusation any longer but notice how both of their accusations here are absolutely true the disciples the apostles were absolutely guilty of both of these things They had continued to preach the name of Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. And by the power of the Spirit, that message had spread all across Jerusalem and beyond. They were guilty of that. And indeed, they did not shy away from declaring the guilt from the fact that the Jews led by this council did indeed crucify Him. We see that they were guilty of both of these things of both proclaiming Christ and indeed pointing out the guilt. The apostles didn't shy away from exposing the people to their guilt. It's one of the reasons why these leaders didn't like what they were saying because it exposed their guilt. But as we saw in chapter 4, it's a necessary part of preaching the gospel that people understand their need of the gospel, that they are showed and demonstrated that they need the gospel because they are guilty Because they're sinners before God. A necessary part of the gospel is declaring a person's guilt. That's the hardest part of preaching the gospel, isn't it? It's easy to stand before Jesus and say, people before people and say, Jesus is great and he loves you so much and he died on a cross for you. That part's relatively easy, isn't it? Not many people are gonna get that mad about that. It's when you say, you are. A sinner. You're guilty. It's when you bring them to an understanding of why they need the grace of God offered in Christ Jesus that things begin to get difficult and that people begin to squirm. And yet we know that only those who understand the reality of their sin, only those who feel the weight of their guilt before God, a holy God, a just God, a righteous God who will pour out His wrath upon sinners, Only then will you ever see the beauty of what Christ did, the value in his sacrifice and the price that was paid. And so the apostles were guilty because these men were guilty and they weren't afraid to say so. And so these accusations, they stand true. Here the disciples are now called upon to give an account for these things. And one thing they cannot say is not guilty. Like me with my speeding ticket, I stood before the judge and they now stand before the council saying, guilty as charged. But then we see their response in verse 29 and 32. This is point number two. They're now standing here being accused of disobeying the council and and placing his blood, that is Christ's blood, on their hands. And we see them do it again in their response to the council in verses 29 through 30. The very same things that they've been accused of show up again right here. Look what Peter says on behalf of the group. Verse 29 and 30, but... Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. In his immediate response to the accusation by these Jewish leaders, Peter literally does exactly the things he's being accused of. The exact thing that the, that the Jews were so angry about. Peter is now doing right in front of them again. He is preaching the gospel in the face of these accusers, in the face of serious opposition. Once again, the frustration of the the council here is is a little bit relatable, right? At this point, they have to be going, we literally just told you, stop doing that. And here you go and do it again. They're like Nemo on Finding Nemo, right? When he's... Swam up, and he's right next to the boat. What's Marlon doing, his dad? He said, do not touch that boat. If you lay one fin on that boat, and what does he do? He touches the boat, right? Oh, it's infuriating, frustrating. The, the Jewish council had to be so irritated at these men. Literally, they, they could care less how strictly they told them, how severely they spoke to them not to preach the name of Christ. Nothing was going to stop them from doing it. And so they go on. Peter preaches Christ right in front of them and lays out their guilt for his death. He lays their guilt out right before them, right to bear. But notice what Peter does then. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop just by laying out their guilt and saying, You killed him. You did it. You're guilty. He doesn't stop there. He shows them their guilt, but then he moves on to shine the spotlight onto the work of Christ, making that the central part of his message. Yes, he tells them that they're guilty, but then what does he tell them right after that? God exalted him. He has raised him. He has exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Peter's desire isn't to just weigh down these men with guilt, but that they would see their guilt and then be drawn to repentance. That they would find the forgiveness that Christ offers That literally, all that they did to put him on that cross, all that he suffered, he suffered so that they might be forgiven, so that we might be forgiven. The very sins of calling for Barabbas instead of Jesus, the very sin of crucifying Jesus, the very sin of murdering the Son of God can be forgiven in Christ Jesus. He says he set him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. The very people that crucified Christ, forgiveness and repentance is made available to them. And this is really the point that the apostles want to get across. The message that they want to declare. They were called and equipped by the Holy Spirit to be a witness to these things in the world. That forgiveness and repentance, grace has been poured out through Jesus Christ so that even for the most wretched of sinners, even those who murdered Christ can find forgiveness in him. The point of their preaching, while it necessarily includes an acknowledgement of guilt, is actually to emphasize the salvation that the resurrection of Christ has won. And brought into the world. The forgiveness and repentance that he gives. As he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. This was central to their message. The guilt was there but it wasn't the only thing. In fact it wasn't even the main thing. Forgiveness for that guilt. Forgiveness for that sin. Was their message. The civil disobedience of Peter and the apostles. Was not shaking an angry fist at the Jews was not trying to get even. It was intended to show them their guilt and then show them the remedy to that very guilt and call them to repentance. Repentance that is made available in Christ Jesus that he gives, that he pours out, and the forgiveness that accompanies it. Ultimately, their message was intended to glorify God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 13-15, Paul writes, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And then he says this in verse 15, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, in other words, as the gospel goes forth, as people are brought to repentance of faith in Christ Jesus, As grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This was the ultimate task, the ultimate goal of the disciples as they preached the gospel, as they brought the message of salvation, as they were used by God, as he empowered them by the Holy Spirit to bring grace into the world. This was their end goal, the very glory of God the apostles found themselves in an awkward position where they were faced with this Jewish council or this court and they had to choose either to obey earthly leaders or to obey God. And to them, the choice was clear. The choice was clear because they knew that one day they would stand before a much higher judge and give an account for their lives here on earth. And the prospect of disobeying that judge, that ruler, was Infinitely more severe than anything these Jewish leaders could have done to them. Infinitely more significant. Obedience to Christ, obedience to our God, demands a kind of radical obedience that even earthly rulers cannot overcome. But it was a scary thing to be in their shoes. It might be easy for us to see their, their boldness of speech, their, their proclamation of the gospel, even in the face of these enemies of God, And think that, well, it was easy for them. But church family, there's no reason to assume that it was. There is reason to assume that the Holy Spirit gave them the boldness that they prayed for and asked for last chapter. That God empowered them for the task that he had given them. But by no means was this an easy thing to do. Well, what about us today? We might never stand before an earthly court and have to explain why we've shared the gospel. We might never might not ever have to stand before an earthly court and try and defend ourselves against accusations because we've been faithful and obedient to the word of God. Though I will say it is increasingly more likely, and we certainly should not be surprised if it was the case for the apostles and for people all throughout church history and for many people across the world today. We certainly shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves standing before earthly courts because of our obedience to Christ and our civil disobedience in that case. But even so, there's another court. It's the court of public opinion. And far too often, that court scares us more than anything else, doesn't it? The idea of what people might think about us if we boldly proclaim the gospel. The fear of the friends that we might lose if we tell people, you are a sinner and you deserve to go to hell. It's a difficult thing to tell people. And you know what? In the court of public opinion, you're going to lose some marks. You're going to lose some friends. You're going to break some relationships. And guess what? Things are going to be awkward sometimes at work. But isn't it worth it? Isn't it far better to be obedient to the commands that we've been given in Scripture? To live faithful, holy lives rather than cave in to the demands of the world? And this is in every case. Certainly evangelism. But even in our willingness to be obedient to the commands God has given us in all other aspects. To live lives that prioritize the worship of God on Sundays. To live lives that discipline ourselves so that we commit ourselves to the reading and teaching of God's word. Even something as simple as catechesis. If you don't know what that is, that means teaching your children catechisms. Teaching them the truths of scripture in memorization form. Asking them doctrinal biblical questions and calling for doctrinal biblical answer, answers. That's so foreign in our world today. And largely people think it's weird. It's weird. Or they think it's very Roman Catholic. Well, guess what? It's not just Roman Catholic. In fact, it has Protestant roots more than Roman Catholic roots. Even something like that can cause you to look weird to the world. And therefore, oftentimes, we can be scared away of living in light of those things, living our lives that, that represent a clear commitment to the commands of Christ. So I think the call for us today is to recognize that Though we might stand, we might even stand before an earthly court having to defend why we disobeyed the laws of the land for the sake of Christ. But even if not, we will have to stand before the court of public opinion. We will have to accept the fact that there are going to be people that do not like what we say, what we do, what we teach, how we live. And we're going to have to face that. Are we willing? Is it worth it? Is the gospel worth it? Is Christ worth it? Church family, I'm asking these questions rhetorically, but you know the answer is yes. It almost seems like a silly question to ask. We know the answer is yes. But oftentimes what we lack is the wherewithal and the the fortitude to make it happen. And so my prayer today, if you're a Christian in here today, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, for my family, for those of us in here today, that our commitment to Christ would far surpass anything else in this world anything else to the point that we are willing to sacrifice relationships, we're willing to sacrifice even our rights and our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And if you're not already, I would encourage you to pray and ask the Lord to give you that kind of boldness, that kind of faithfulness, that kind of commitment to him, no matter what the cost. As we'll see in the upcoming pages and chapters, there is indeed a great cost associated with living in this way. Are we willing to pay it? The disciples were, and we'll learn more about that next week as we get into part two of our series, Bow Your Heads.